0: Good morning. Thank you, Tasia, for reading so well. Such important things. What a great team of people you have leading us in worship. And what great songs that Ryan chose today. This is just a privilege. Yeah, it's great to be back here in uh, Wisconsin Rapids. Uh, my wife and I are from Rockford now, Illinois, and we drove up yesterday. And... Uh, She'll be with me here in the second service, so she hadn't been here before. I'm glad she can meet some of you. In 2010, I uh, heard that uh, Dr. E.V. Hill was going to be preaching down at Moody Founders Week. I was in the suburbs at the time, and uh, I wanted to go hear this guy. He was a great uh, preacher, African American preacher. I'd heard so much about him. He told about a time when he'd been preaching in Kansas City, a series of meetings, and a woman came up after the service and asked him if he would pray for her sister, who was um, uh, very hostile to Christianity. She was part of a very militant branch of the militant group, the Black Panthers, he said he'd pray for her, and he suggested that not only should they pray, but that she should invite her sister to church. Oh, she'd never do that, she said. Well, let's pray about it. So they did, and on the last night of the meetings, as Dr. Hill was waiting to preach, he noticed a young woman came and sit in the very back, sat in the very back row, uh, and uh, he said she acted very hostile, and somehow I... Was just led to believe that it was her. After the sermon, she stood in line to uh, speak to him. And when it was her turn, she said, I've listened to you now for an hour and a half. So stop your griping. <laughs> she said, You've said nothing that would be relevant to my people. I think you're a fraud. I think you're the one who, needs to, you're one who needs to be done away with. He said he asked her to step aside till he could talk privately and so he could get a little love before he went <laughs> and do it again. Uh, so she agreed to wait. And, and when they met in a side room afterwards, Dr. Hill said, she began again to berate the church. And then the Lord opened a wide door. She said, you kept asking me to accept Christ. Well, I want to ask you a question. If I had accepted Jesus, what would I have now? Hill said, that's the door wide open. In other words, what do you have when you have Jesus? Dr. Hill said that he had 12 points that day at Moody. We settled in, having been warned about a sermon that would go an hour and a half. And uh, he didn't actually do 12 points. He did three and just stopped. I went back three months later, and the first thing he said when he was introduced was, my fourth point is, and he kept going. Well, um, and his points, he he was drawing from all over scripture, which is easy to do because if you want to know what you have when you have Jesus you can read anywhere and you can find the treasures that we have in Christ for me it was a few weeks ago that I happened to just decide to start reading Ephesians and I read these first verses that you've just heard and I just got stuck there I just kept reading them again and again and I realized I had this opportunity coming up to preach here and I wanted to Talk to you about it. Now, I put this up on the board, not on the screen, not so that you would read it all. I want you to understand something really crazy about this passage. In the original Greek, there are no capital letters, there are no periods or commas or dashes or verse numbers, and this is all one sentence. It's crazy. It's like clauses are fighting with each other. No, I modify that. No, I get to modify that. That's my line, right? It's, and if if your translation of the passage is a little different than the one I'm using, that's the reason. Because translators are trying to figure out where's the best place to put the period or the comma to have this make sense. There's over 200 words there. And all just goes is like, Paul says hello and then bam, off he goes and he just can't contain himself and he just comes tumbling out, all this extraordinary stuff. But you heard as Tasia was reading, it's kind of hard to process all this. It's a lot. But what we have here is the answer to Dr. Hill's question. What do you have when you have Jesus? The passage begins. He has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ now I don't think he purports to tell us every blessing in this paragraph but there are six and we're gonna look at six there's a rule in preaching three or four points is the max so we're gonna do six (laughs) just a couple other things by way of introduction when he says to thank God because we are blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's an expression that's used elsewhere in Ephesians and nowhere else. I think what he means is that these blessings are banked in heaven. They're kept there for us in the safekeeping of God. It's not that you don't get them till you go to heaven. It's that they operate from there. We're used to the idea now that folks can work remotely. They tap into the office somewhere else in some other state or something. Well, that's kind of like this. We operate remotely. We have all the resources that we need to live as believers, but they're all kept in heaven for us. We tap into them from here. They're ours now, and we have them within and among us. And the other thing that you want to see here is That we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. I made another slide. I want you to look at this one. This is that same uh, passage of scripture. Bring up that next one. There it is. These are all the times, just in this paragraph, where the phrase in Christ or something like it appears. I think there were ten. The point is that every spiritual blessing we have is only ours because we are in Christ. It's such an unusual phrase, isn't it? It's all over the Bible, all over the New Testament. In Christ. I can't think of a good analogy for it. Uh, We are cocooned is the best word I can think of. We're cocooned in Christ. We are in him. When he died on the cross, we died in him. When he rose from the dead, we rose with him, in him. When he's in heaven reigning, we are in him. All these things are ours because we are in Christ. If we're not in Christ, we got squat. We got nothing. So with that, what do you have when you have Jesus? Verse 4 says, For he chose us in him, in Jesus, before the creation of the world. He chose us before the creation of the world. This passage has a lot of language like that, and I won't dwell on it for time's sake, but you'll see it. To be holy and blameless in his sight. God chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. That's one thing you have when you have Jesus. When God created Adam and Eve, they were to have dominion over all his creation, over all the earth. And when he created them, they were holy and blameless. Holy means set apart for God. Blameless means there were no accusations to be made against them morally, spiritually. They and their descendants were in the plan of God to be a wise, loving, righteous race of human beings reigning over the world that God had entrusted to us. They would actually meet with God, walk with Him in the garden in the cool of the day. It was that intimate. Then sin, of course, ruined everything. Human beings were no longer set apart for God. But were separated from God. Instead of being blameless, we were blameworthy in every respect and to the greatest extent. But then God reversed the curse through Christ, so that we are reckoned by God to be righteous, to be holy and blameless in the heart and mind and the books, you might say, the court of God. Despite the fact that our record and character says something else. It's impossible, I think, to just get our heads around this. We know the weight of guilt and sin. That's why we come and sing these songs. If you came in this morning burdened by your sinfulness and your guilt and your weakness, these songs that we've sung were intended to remind us of the truth that we are holy and blameless in Christ. Today, when we prayed, no bright angel stopped us at the door of God's presence and said we were not allowed in no holy guardian took us into custody and locked us away for daring to approach the holy God now we came boldly into God's presence freely we didn't even think about it as being dangerous when we bowed our heads to pray our hearts to worship. We can go into God's presence because we are holy and blameless. And God's presence won't be contaminated by us being there. And we won't be incinerated by being with him. And when we step wide-eyed into the vast and bright courts of heaven no one will stop us there either. No one will look askance because of our former way of life. We will be able to go wherever God sends us throughout his whole vast, bright kingdom. There will be nothing we cannot touch. No one we cannot meet. Nowhere we cannot go, because we are holy and blameless. The most glorious angel will not outrank you. For we are now and forever holy and blameless in his sight. That's what you have when you have Jesus. Yeah, but there's more. Verses 5 and 6. Try to track with us. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. There it is again. In accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Spiritual blessing number two, God adopted us and gave us the full Rights as his heirs. People speak glibly about how everybody all people are God's children. I just heard it this week again. That's not true. All people are not God's children. That's not in the Bible. It doesn't teach we're all God's creation. We were all orphans, actually, and worse. We were runaways. And rebels, alienated from God, we had no more right to God's affection and care than the poorest beggar in the worst slum or the most dangerous criminal in the deepest prison has a right to your good name and your fortune. Now even though God determined that we would be holy and blameless in his sight through Christ that wasn't enough for God. He wanted to do more. And so what did he do? He adopted us. His love moved him to adopt us. He didn't need to adopt us. He wanted to love. And his love has always sought every expression possible. Hmm. So in love, he adopted us. That's what it says. Maybe you know some people who went to some faraway country to adopt a child. But you don't know anybody who went so far as our Heavenly Father to adopt us. What's more, no parent ever made an adopted son or daughter richer or gave them such a high and exalted position and name as our Father has given us. We have been given the rights of the firstborn son. That's the language the Bible uses. In fact, Hebrews calls us The church of the firstborn. You could put that on the door. It means nothing. It has nothing to do with who was born first. It means we are the people of God. Who have all the rights and privileges. Of being a firstborn son. You're the church of the firstborn. Wow. In fact. uh, It's as if. I know this is, doesn't quite match, but it's as if you could hear God reading his will. The God who never dies is giving us, he's reading his will to us. He says, I give you everything. And I give you everything. And I give you everything. You're my favorite. You're my favorite. You're my favorite. You're my favorite. That's what he's doing. The rights of the firstborn. The Bible says that we are God's heirs. And not distant heirs either. One time we discovered that uh, Susan's uncle Ralph had died. And after many months, out of the blue, we got a check for ten bucks. Which was our share of the estate. (laughs) It's not like that. When the Bible says we're heirs, it's not like that. We are co-heirs with Jesus. Whatever Jesus gets, we get. Can you believe that? That's what it is to be adopted. We are heirs of God, it says, and co-heirs with Christ. And when you have Jesus, that's what you have. But... There's more. Verses 7 and 8. This is something we've sung about this morning in various ways. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Spiritual blessing number three, we've been redeemed and forgiven. We have been redeemed and forgiven. Before we could be recreated as holy and blameless, before we could be born again and be adopted into God's circle of love, we had to be redeemed and forgiven. It's a bedrock of our faith. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. We were enslaved to sin. Dead to rights. Utterly alienated from God. Condemned to a living death in hell. And with no appeals left. So God remedied our hopeless destiny. By sending his son to die in our place. We've heard it a thousand times. These two words, redemption and forgiveness, are uh, like two sides of the salvation coin. Redemption speaks of a price that is paid, right? Redemption speaks of a price, a transaction that secures salvation, that buys us. Out of condemnation whereas forgiveness I think speaks more of the restoring of the relationship with God it's what God gives us it's relational if redemption points to the courtroom and the judge and condemnation and justification if all that is wrapped up in the word redemption forgiveness points to the father's welcome home the all is forgiven tearful embrace the gift of the robe and the ring and the feast now be sure you understand that redemption and forgiveness are not only given to us at the beginning of our walk with Jesus it's not just how we get saved It's how we keep walking with Jesus. We need it all the time. We keep going back again and again. Surely you did this this morning. Surely as you sang some of these songs, at least for some of us, there was some weight of sin, some sense of failure. And as we sang them, we go, it's forgiven. I have been redeemed. I don't have to live with this. It's gone. We just do this over and over throughout all the days of our mortal life till we step into heaven. matter what we've done or how guilty we feel it says later we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need and you know what a relief that is and that is another thing you have when you have Jesus redemption and forgiveness but there's more He's checking in. Verses 9 and 10. He says, With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will. That's the part we'll kind of underline. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect When the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. That is a complicated passage right there. But what it's saying in a nutshell, what we'll just think about for a moment, is the fourth blessing we have. God has shown us, ordinary people, how all his plans come together in Christ. God has shown us how all his plans come together in Christ. In this world, people are forever trying to figure out how the world works. I have a friend I see every week at the coffee shop. He's uh, despairing, really. He's a, his whole world, is, his, his whole interest is in uh, ecology and the way the world is, the earth has been treated. And he's hopeless. He doesn't want to hear from me. I was thinking about this poem by the great American poet T.S. Eliot, who was, I believe, a believer. But he wrote a a poem about the condition, the hopeless condition of human beings called the hollow men. And it's this dark poem. And then it ends with this sort of sing-songy, dark nursery rhyme sounding verse. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but a whimper. But we know other. We know that's not true. We know what is going on in this world. And despite all the craziness, all the confusion, all the mixed up stuff we have to look at, we know what's going on in the big picture because God has revealed it to us through our relationship with Jesus the Old Testament is God's great revelation of himself we read the Old Testament we learn who God is not just his judgment I know a pastor who says the Old Testament teaches about God's judgment and the New Testament does love that's not true God identifies himself in the, New Te- in the Old Testament. His, the key phrase, the key verse is, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. The Old Testament reveals his desire to establish a holy people for himself. But the Old Testament, all this... It's like a mystery without the last chapter. Right? I'm a mystery guy. I like mysteries. I know murder mysteries. I know, I do, but I do like them. But it would be one dirty trick to get to the end of a mystery and turn a page and go, wait a minute, what happened? How's this turn out? Right? That's what the Old Testament does. All the clues are there. If somebody can explain it to you, you go, oh, it's all there. But you can't see it. The writers themselves couldn't see it. When Paul speaks here of the mystery of God's will, that's what he's talking about. He's referring to the unfinished story revealed in the Old Testament. How could Israel, Israel that we read about in the Old Testament with all their Failings and sins and exile and everything. How could they ever be a blessing for the whole world the way God promised Abraham they would? How could that possibly be? How would there ever be an end to those blood sacrifices and all the other sacrifices and ceremonies? What were they all for? Where were they all going? How could there ever be a greater king than David? a king who would put Israel on the center of the map of the world how could God write his own laws on human hearts as he promised through Jeremiah how could he possibly do that how could God's mighty Messiah be crushed for our iniquities how could that be how could there be a vast and enduring temple how could this tortured creation ever be eaten again? How could the mighty Satan ever be defeated when he holds the keys to death and hell? How could the lion ever lie down with the lamb? Peter wrote, as I've said, that the Old Testament prophets themselves, the ones who wrote it, Really couldn't figure out how this was going to happen. But we know. We sang it this morning. There's not a Christian here. Who doesn't understand the basics. of How Jesus brings everything together. The mystery of God has been revealed to you. We teach it to our little ones. What no one in the Old Testament could put together. David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Malachi. None of them could put it together. You can. And you do. You don't have to be some Bible scholar to do that. It's plain as day because the mystery has been revealed. The times, as it says here, have reached their fulfillment. The great truths we all know were held in the shadows throughout all the centuries of the Old Testament. They couldn't really see the incarnation, God made flesh. They couldn't really grasp the astonishing sacrifice of the Messiah, the son of God, as the lamb of God. They couldn't see that. They couldn't have sung the songs we sang. They couldn't understand that he, this crucified Messiah would rise from the dead in a new and glorious body, not just resuscitated, but different, and then ascend to sit at the right hand of God on high. They couldn't have put all that together. But you know it. It's all in the Old Testament. It's all there. You can preach the gospel from the Old Testament if you know Jesus, which is what he did on the, on the Emmaus Road after the resurrection. He talked to those disciples. He opened the scriptures to them. In fact, it's so interesting in that passage... He hid who he was. They didn't know they were talking to Jesus. Why? Why wouldn't he let them see? Because he wanted them to see that it was in the scriptures. They didn't have to have him there. To see him. They could see him in all they knew from the Old Testament. Let alone what would be revealed more clearly in the New Testament. You see the phrase at the end in verse 10. Verse 10. To bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Another translation speaks of the summing up of all things in Christ. Another says, uh, puts it to unite all things in him. All the roads of the Old Testament, all the roads in the Old Testament lead to Jesus. Jesus. And all the roads into the future start with Jesus and are explained by Jesus. You want to know what happened? You know one of the things pastors all know? If you ask people, what do you want me to preach on next? They're going to say Revelation. He just preached on Revelation. It's because somebody said, we ought to preach on Revelation. We want to know what's going to happen. Well, I don't blame you. I like it too. But what we learn is everything proceeds from Jesus. And even if you don't understand who the rider on the red horse is in Revelation... You know that everything comes together in Jesus. He is the A and the Z. And here's the, the coup de grace of all of this. We are in Christ. Colossians one twenty echoes this passage in this particular way. He says that God has chosen to make known among, among the Lord's people the glorious Riches of this mystery, and here's the mystery Christ in you, the hope of glory. It all comes down to that. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that's what you have when you have Jesus. But. There's more. Some of you are going, really? No, you're not. I know you're not. Let me read next. I'm going to jump to verse, the middle of verse 13. When you believed, you were marked in him, in Christ, there it is again, with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Spiritual blessing number five. We are given the Holy Spirit. We are given the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised when he was departing, he told his disciples he was going to send his Holy Spirit to be with you and to help you and to be with you forever. And now he says, we were marked in him, in Christ, with a seal. You are already in Christ but so that you know it, and as proof to the unseen realms, there is a seal on you. It's almost as if, um, I I have a a seal for some of my books. It's a stamp. And I go to the front page, and I squeeze this thing, and it says from the Library of Leaclum. That book belongs to me. And I could sell it to you, but you're still going to see my seal on it, right? Right. We are marked with the seal. And what is the seal? It is the Holy Spirit who has been implanted in us by Christ. The Holy Spirit isn't somebody else. It is the Spirit of Christ. This is a Trinity idea. When we come to Jesus, we are under new ownership. And we also have a new source of life within us. We have been recreated. We have been born again. That's not just a figure of speech. It's the way the Bible explains this new life that we've been given. The Spirit takes up residence in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He regenerates us. He rejuvenates us. He revitalizes us. When you, as a believer, have on some occasions, maybe often, a deep sense of the presence of God, well, that's the Holy Spirit in you. When you want to read your Bible or when you read your Bible even when you don't want to and you read it and it starts to make sense and it speaks to you like this passage did when I read it a few weeks ago. That is the Holy Spirit. That's not your native intelligence, curiosity. That's the Spirit speaking to your heart. When you feel convicted of a sin, To the point that you need to bring it to God and go make things right with someone else. That's the Holy Spirit. And when you feel prompted to do good. To reach out to somebody. To write a card. To go see someone. To respond to your family in a certain sacrificial way. That's the Holy Spirit. And when God whispers to you that you need to be among God's people. That it's not the same to watch on television or read a book or go for a walk in the woods and be in touch with God. When the Spirit says, no, you need to be with my people. That's where I am. This is my body. When he does that, that's the Holy Spirit. All these things that he does, that he speaks to us. And it goes on to say, when you experience these, these influences from within... That is the mark of the Holy Spirit that shows that you belong to Jesus. I've had people come to me as a pastor and say, I'm not really sure if I'm converted. I said, I'm pretty sure that the very fact you ask that it concerns you is evidence that you're converted. What unbeliever does that? Maybe some, but when I talk I say, I see Jesus in you. I see your heart for Christ. I can see these things. Jesus said, by their fruit you'll know them. I don't have to be a mystic I can see this because the Spirit of God changes people. You have him sealing you until we receive our inheritance. All this that we experience in the Holy Spirit <clears throat> is a kind of foretaste of what heaven will be like. These are all things that will come to full flower when we step into heaven and we are unhindered in heart and mind and spirit by any sin Or mortality, or in confusion, all things will be clear. Now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. And the Spirit of God, what He is producing and showing us now, will be uh, all there, all revealed. Everything you have now will come in glorious splendor. And that is what you have. When you have Jesus wait there's one more thing. one grand final blessing. I kind of skipped over it in the flow of things here and it's uh, verses 11 to 13. This is complicated, but let me read it. Here again we have this um, election predestination language in him, in Christ, we also the Jews were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purposes of His will. That's the Old Testament plan. In order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of His glory. There, that's the line. Might be for the praise of His glory. And you, everybody else, the Gentiles, were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. That phrase might be for the praise of his glory. This whole paragraph started that way. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6 said, to the praise of his glorious grace. And the last words of verse 14 are to the praise of his glory. If I asked you, What is your greatest accomplishment? What are you proudest of? What has made your life something that mattered? What will people say or what do you hope they'll remember when you're gone? What would you say? Whatever it is. Whatever it is. It pales in comparison to this one blessing. We live now and forever for the praise of God's glory. We live now and forever for the praise of God's glory. God worked out all of this. Down to the last and least saved sinner. Before the creation of the world. That's mystifying. It's hard. That's what it says. Because God who needed nothing wanted to love no matter what it would cost him. That is the greatest thing about God. Not all the beautiful things that he created. Nor his wise and good moral commands. The best thing about God, the most amazing thing. The thing that tells us most profoundly what God is like, (coughs) excuse me, is that He fixed His love on people, even long before they were created, even knowing what they would do, and found a way to love them into His own family, even at the cost of His own Son. And you and I are the exhibits of God's greatest glory. We are to live now, today, this week, now and forever like living spotlights showing the glory of God. We show, we, you, you, we show what God has done through Jesus Christ. He has no other way that's remotely as close as putting us on pedestals. Somebody told me about the experience they had going into the great hall in Rome. where Michelangelo's statue of David stands. He said, there are other busts of famous people. He said, you don't even see them. You just see this beautiful, ginormous statue. That's you. You You are put on God's pedestal. We are living love songs to God. Living works of art. Displaying what is best about God. Angels will sing in heaven when they see you. And what God has done in you and in his people. What he's made of us knowing where we came from. If the angels rejoice over one sinner who repents, what do they do when they see what God makes of that sinner? Of all that we have received in Jesus from that day of new birth and forward. And that is what you have when you have Jesus. Pastor Lee, how should we apply this sermon? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. You take your Bible wherever you're reading and look for the blessings that are yours in Christ. They're all there, woven through these pages and stories. Look for the blessings and then praise God. Let part of your life be thoughtful. You know what was best about this for me? Was I had to sit and think. Just sit and think. I thought, I'm going to go and speak to people. I've got to say something more than just what the words say, I've got to help it come to life for me. Just sit and think. Chew on it. And then praise God for it. Because that's what you have when you have Jesus. Let's pray. Oh God, we bring our songs to you and we mean them. We thank you for things when we pray and we mean it, but we are shallow and glib. I pray that you, oh God, would take these scriptures and wherever my brothers and sisters happen to be reading in the Bible and bring a kind of Generate a kind of life out of those verses so that we can see the spiritual blessings that are kept for us in heaven in Christ. May we be spotlights, living spotlights on the glory of God now and forever. Amen.